Listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Business of Wellness. I am here for a solo episode today. We have a number of amazing guests that are coming up over the next couple of weeks. But before we get into all of their amazing work, I wanted to touch base with you guys and talk a little bit about one of the touchiest issues (laughs) that I think is spilling over pun intended when you hear what I'm about to say, but I think this is a a spillover topic into the business of wellness. And that is the controversy about and around Bud Light. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the three things that better for you food and beverage brands can learn from the Bud Light controversy, what those three things mainly are. I'm I'm only going to touch on these three today, but I, I would absolutely encourage and welcome all of your listener questions, your comments, your concerns, where you stand on this issue. I think it is a truly fraught and politically sensitive issue in a truly fraught and and currently very tenuous political environment that's also very divided. And I have been endlessly fascinated with this topic. So it's taken me a little while. And I know this episode is a little bit late compared to when our last one came out. But um, but I wanted to be careful about how I spoke about this. And of course, not too careful because that's not what we're here to do on the business of wellness. We're here to have frank and honest and open and meaningful conversations and dialogues. And in this case, it is a dialogue between me and you. But I think there's a lot that's not actually being said about Bud Light from a purely marketing and strategy standpoint that I wanted to talk a little bit more about today. I have listened to just about every existing podcast on the topic. I have read every article. I am still, I think that there are a lot of outlets out there that should be commenting on this that are not. And I think we all know why, right? This is sort of one of those third rail topics that no one wants to get involved in. So... (laughs) Just to stay on brand as myself, I'm going there. Um, but what I think is really interesting about it and that I really want to get into um, a little bit more deeply with you today is that there are some things that we are really losing sight of, the nutrition marketing angle and from the what it means to be a food and beverage brand in 2023 angle. And that's really where we're going to spend most of our time today. So... Without further ado, let's get into the episode. I am thrilled to share this with you. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, listening to different perspectives, getting some different political angles on this. But really, ultimately, where I land on this and where we're going to spend most of our time focusing today is what this means from a better for you food and beverage brand marketing standpoint. And that's really where, you know, ultimately I have permission to play and to comment and to speak to all of you about. So I, again, welcome all of your questions, your comments, your concerns, what you're thinking about on the topic, how you think this unfolded, what your take is. I would love to hear from you. You can always leave me a message, a review, a... I would love to hear from you in a review, honestly, guys, on Apple Podcasts um, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And of course, be sure to rate the podcast five stars and follow me at Jacqueline London RD across social platforms at Jacqueline London on TikTok. And you can always find the Business of Wellness on Instagram. I have not been up to date on that account, but I'm going to get on it immediately. So check that out. I'm going to link it here in the episode notes and let's get into it. Okay, so the first thing that I want to talk about today as it relates to Bud Light, the key takeaways, and what better for you brands should learn from it is don't 
forget your unique value proposition. And I think this is one of those that is just not being talked about enough. No one has mentioned what Bud Light was initially intended to be and what type of brand it was initially intended to be. And when I say brand here, what I really mean is product. So let's just rewind a second and take a look at why Bud Light exists in the first place. And this is really at the core of why I think Better For You brands really need to take notice of what's happened here. So in the case of Bud Light, it is first and foremost, a lower calorie beer, right? Bud Light is 110 calories. It's six grams of carbohydrates and it's 4.2 alcohol by volume. Now, Anheuser-Busch, the, the original Budweiser, that's 150 calories, 11 grams of carbs, and 15% ABV. And I think we cannot ignore this kind of subtle, low-key elephant in the room, which is that of efforts to avoid talking about nutritional attributes like lower actual energy by volume, aka lower calories per serving. This often has strategic campaigns, including influencer mailers and influencer marketing activation, right? There is this clear shift and this clear like out of touch tone to the idea that we cannot talk about calories anymore, that we should not be focused on the fact that Bud Light is just a lower calorie beer and that's it. And that's what the product is, right? And I, I think that we forget that actually that's okay. <laughs> that's the unique value proposition of a product like Bud Light. It is a lower, lighter version of the original beer that was made by Bud Light, uh, made by Budweiser. Sorry. Um, what I think is really interesting is when you look back at the history of their marketing and you look at some of the bigger, the better known campaigns, I think about the Super Bowl. And I think many of us are probably thinking about the Super Bowl right now is that they've always had these kind of classic, um, lighthearted, humorous, uh, ads that run during the Super Bowl. But we, we all know what it is when it sits on a shelf next to Budweiser, right? We know that regardless of the flashy campaign, regardless of the humor, which, you know, we'll get into more of that in just a sec, but outside of any other attribute about the brand itself, the product, the unique value proposition of the product is to be a lower calorie beer. I think what I see a lot of other brands doing, particularly in the better for you space is losing sight of what they're there to do of what they're there to be for consumers, a solution, an alternative to the higher calorie beer. Now, 150 calories versus 110 calories, does that matter too much to me? Not really, not as a dietitian, no. But it does matter when you're drinking multiple beers in one night, right? Like that does actually kind of make a difference that 40 calorie difference. So I think that that's who they were originally targeting is people who are drinking more than one beer at a night. People who are, I mean, I think back to college and I just think it was either Bud Light or Natty Light that was at every single frat party. And I feel like I probably drank my weight in it as did many people in college, right? Like the idea is that you can drink more of it because it is a lighter physically product. It's a lower calorie product and therefore you feel like you can have more of it. Now, I think there is something there. And frankly, I don't know enough about the biochemistry of beer to pretend that I do. So I'm not even going to take you guys down that rabbit hole with me. But something I think is interesting is like, should there be a, more of a lean in to the, to the, 
you know, full calorie, the the full energy load of Budweiser, right? Like of having an actual beer versus having the Bud Light. I don't know. I'm not even there yet in my mind. But what I am thinking about is the fact that so many brands do this. I see so many good examples of this all over the place. I think for the purpose of our discussion, I want to focus on, you know, something like a Beyond Meat, right? Who really messed up (laughs) by effectively, you know, leaning into the marketing and the messaging and the brand positioning of a plant-based meat alternative. They wanted to effectively create a new category where there wasn't one, right? So instead of saying we're a veggie burger, they went with we're plant-based meat. We taste like meat, but we're made from plants. And everything about that just purely on its face, just from a logic standpoint, it makes no sense. Am I right? You know what I mean? Like, like if we just take a step back and we just pretend that we're back in 2018, 2019, when this was originally launching and we just think, did we really need this? Do we really need this? You know what I mean? Like we did not. And, and I think what's interesting to think about is their unique value proposition, right? It's not in the case of Beyond Meat. What makes it different is that their unique value proposition was to say that we taste like meat right? That was the sort of number one thing. We taste like meat, but we're not meat. And I get it, right? Like there's a compelling story there, which is that you want to fill in the gap with we're not meat, which means we must be better for the climate. We, we must be out there fighting climate change if we're not meat, right? But the reality is that actually the issue of meat, not eating meat, climate, the degree to which you personally on an individual level prioritize the climate and and wh- how we feel about environmental conditions and the the planet right i would venture to say that most people most consumers in the us care about the climate it's a question often what becomes the political question is at what cost right is to what degree do we prioritize the climate over other things and that's a big discussion right now, right? I mean, and I'm not even going to go there with with my feelings on that. I just think that we're not framing it the right way so often, right? And I've I've often found myself thinking this and so reading so many news articles and hearing different debates with people on all sides of the aisle is that the dismissiveness of climate change denialism is is actually just it's just a way of kind of dismissing the issue at large, which is to what extent do you prioritize the climate over certain economic or geopolitical issues or concerns? So I think right there, the premise then means that a brand like Beyond Meat is founded on a false premise, right? Like it's founded on the idea that we're doing something currently wrong. So rather than saying we're going to raise cattle in a way that we know is humane and responsible and treats animals with the greatest of care and also treats the land with the greatest of care, right? They wanted to make this bold statement, quote unquote, that is we're fighting climate change by creating a plant-based meat product. Meanwhile, what are the carbon emissions (laughs) that come from producing a, a product that tastes like meat but isn't? What, what, how much water is used in order to produce a product like that? And, you know, above all else, what does it mean at an individual level to have to go to a supermarket like a Whole Foods where these products were initially sold, right? When they first rolled out, they weren't just at every supermarket. They were at specialty markets. So wh- what is the environmental impact of people that have to get in their car to go and buy your product then on the environment? <laughs> 
And I think these issues are not being talked about, but in a, in an, in a world such as ours in 2023, where information has never been more available to people, especially young people, and you can just get on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or any of these various platforms and find out a little bit more about things, you kind of Gen Z is empowered to put these things together, right? It, there's there's more of a, I have follow-up questions tone to today's environment. We're not just all going to buy what you're selling just because you're selling it in a certain way and aligning to a certain core value. So I think that's critical. Now, the other thing that I want to say on the topic as it relates to Beyond Meat and the comparisons to Beyond Meat is that, you know, when there's no nutritional upside to your product, and people like me, dietitians like me, are out here questioning, what is the actual benefit of this product? If you can't demonstrate reducing the environmental impact, reducing water use or carbon emissions, and your nutritional comparison actually puts you as the same, if not less nutritious than lean ground beef, why would someone become a repeat customer? Right? Why would someone continue to purchase this product? So as Beyond Meat lost market share, as we've seen, they continue to double down on this, this dated message at this point that, that is, we're here for, we're plant-based meat. We support the environment. It's like, honestly, give me a break. Like no one's buying that at this point. Um, and, and actually the options there were sort of threefold the way that I see it. One would be you had the option to reformulate. Right. You could have said, you know what? Actually, we're not as good <laughs> as ground beef. So let's take an opportunity and make this more nutritionally optimal so that it's okay that we taste like meat, but maybe we taste a little bit less like meat, but we want to make sure that we're meeting a nutritional KPI, right? Like it could have been lower in sodium or saturated fat. One of those would have done it and made it seem nutritionally advantageous compared to ground beef. The other thing that could have been done is to come up with some actually meaningful demonstrable, something that they could prove and stand behind that was a specific sustainability metric. Something that would have been compelling enough, at least at the consumer level, to say, we're, this is where we've really, we're moving the needle as far as sustainability goes. And the third would be to, to pivot the marketing strategy. The, if the marketing strategy had been a little bit less sanctimonious and more, we're one option among many, right? We're a different option. And then leaned into something more creative, something that's more focused on the humor of it, something that is focused on their production and the soybeans that they're using to create, um, you know, to create this burger patty that tastes like meat, but isn't right. Something that really speaks to something that other people feel like, yeah, that is honestly either really funny and I want to get on board with it. I want to be a part of it or really self-deprecating that kind of leans into the funniness of it all. Or maybe it's something that just highlights a different ingredient that they're using that actually makes it more nutritious or is a more nutritious ingredient within the ingredients list. Any of those feel like options, right? But they didn't do any of that. <laughs> and honestly, it makes sense when you have to answer to an executive team or a board of directors, like all of those things make sense. And they were focused on the IPO. And I, I get all of that, right? But where I think that we can learn a lot from that as it relates to Bud Light is that I come back to the same place, which is don't forget your unique value proposition. If you want to just be plant-based meat and you really want people to buy in on why plant-based meat, then you kind of have to focus on or strategize around some of the key things that make plant-based meat advantageous. 
Similarly, if you really want people to buy your light beer, you kind of have to focus in on what makes light beer great. And I have yet to see Bud Light do that in the last at least five years, at least. I mean, I'm sure it goes back further than that, but that's really where I've been, you know, in this heavy food and bev marketing space. And so that's where I've been looking at it. And and I can't really see how moving away from the message of light beer has benefited them. Now, I know that there are people, there's going to be critics that say, Jackie, you idiot, like, just look at hard seltzer or some of these other drink alternatives. Well, actually, Anheuser-Busch InBev has plenty of hard seltzers and these lower-calorie um, drinkable options that are out there, right? They have those under their portfolio. But what they don't have is the ability to keep these brands distinguished and continue to just remind themselves of what each brand brings to the table. And if Bud Light is, you know, as American as apple pie, then a lower calorie beer option for Bud Light is actually a pretty sound marketing strategy right there. It's all in one. Um, and I, I think it, we're forgetting that sometimes it's a little bit like the simplest plan, the most straightforward plan could actually be the most effective and could help weather some of the more challenging economic times and continue to see some pull through for the product on shelves. So just something to think about on that front. Ultimately, do not forget your unique value proposition. The other thing I just want to kind of close this topic out with is to remind you guys of this of a lot of the the ways that I see this now. And I know that plant-based gets a lot of that kind of health halo, the effects of, you know, the the health adjacent marketing claim of it all. But what I also think is interesting is that I've seen a lot of different beverage brands do this in the non-alcoholic space, which is to talk about a specific cause or even a specific kind of like elusive health benefit. Like, let's just take my friends at Olipop for a second. Supports gut health, supports digestive wellness, right? Like if you make a claim as elusive as that, you don't have to stand by it, right? You can just make a claim like that and you're capturing, like you're hooking yourself onto a larger trend. But what happens is that ultimately you have people like me and many others who are calling out the fact that actually um, inulin, in a drinkable sparkling beverage form, maybe a little harsh on the GI tract and that maybe the immediate benefits won't be seen there. And that really where we could stand to get more prebiotic fiber is from prebiotic foods and not beverages. So I think it's really interesting because I'm seeing so many brands kind of go to this place of forgetting what, what could actually make them great. In the case of Olipop, I personally think that they taste great. I think they taste delicious. I personally can't drink them because my gastrointestinal tract can't handle it. But that doesn't mean that the idea behind the products and creating um, these flavorful products made from different ingredients isn't there. It just might take a little bit more time. I don't know. I don't know if it's the current world, the current environment that we're in that makes people kind of rush to go to market. And I get it. I mean, I, I think like the mantra of the whole Facebook era of fail fast, you know, it makes a ton of sense. It's a very Silicon Valley way of operating, of doing business, but it's not always the best to fail fast and then get traction based on a, a kind of false promise, a myth, a failure, essentially, which is to promise supports digestive wellness and not actually be able to deliver. And in many cases, actually deliver quite the opposite. 
So I see that with, with things like Olipop. The other place I see it is with a sparkling seltzer, and I'm forgetting the name of this right now. Sparkling seltzer is redundant, but, um, but it's a product that I will link for you guys when I have a chance to look it up. And it is a product that really markets its efforts to, um, to give back to a charity. I think it's a fantastic idea. Do I think that it belongs as part of the real estate on the product packaging itself? No, because I think this is this is just yet another way to confuse consumers. The product is just perfectly fine. It's an average product. It has some added sugar, but not too much added sugar. It, it's honestly just fine. I would recommend it. I would say I'd prefer that you have an unsweetened beverage as a dietitian, right? Like, but it's not it's not anything like offensive. <laughs> not loaded with added sugar and it's not like loaded up with sugar alcohols. It's just, it's just okay. And I just think that like, this is one of these ways of distracting and obfuscating. Like when you can't be the absolute best in a category or you're unwilling to define what best really means for you, or most importantly, you're unwilling to define exactly what it is that makes your unique value proposition what it is, then it's like you're looking for 85 different ways to justify your existence on a supermarket shelf. Stop doing that. <laughs> I don't see who that's helping. You're not helping consumers make a more informed choice. You're basically saying, look over here. Don't look at the product. Don't look at the nutrition facts. Look at how all the good that we're doing for society. And I just think it, it reeks of flash in the pan. It reeks of marketing strategy rather than actual good product. And I think consumers are getting more and more hip to that fact. So bottom line, don't forget your UVP. All right, let's move on. All right. So the second topic that I want to cover today is about something that, again, has been largely overlooked, and that is taste and taste ruling above all else. Now, I was thinking about this last night as I was making notes and also making noodles. <laughs> and as I was making those noodles, I used Kikoman soy sauce. It's a brand that I've worked with for years at Good Housekeeping because they have earned the Good Housekeeping seal. Um, and they make one of the only, they're, they're the only leading brand of gluten-free soy sauce on the market. There's plenty of others. There's liquid aminos and all these other, you know, kind of BS, um, products that are marketing themselves as, uh, you know, Tamari. There's lots of other smaller brands out there. Fine. But they're the only leading brand with a gluten-free soy sauce that you can reliably get and find at the supermarket. Arguably, you could say there's a lot of parallels iconic brand with global reach and distribution um, that makes a product that is widely available and used by many people. Now, gluten-free, of course, is the one that I chose because I am gluten-free, but you obviously can get Kikoman regular soy sauce. You can get Kikoman low sodium soy sauce, right? Like, you know what you're going to get. And when you don't have Kikoman soy sauce, and you have sushi or you're cooking something that is Asian cuisine inspired, you notice, right? I mean, I know I'm not the only one who feels like that, right? Like, you know that it doesn't quite taste like, like soy sauce, like how you expect soy sauce to taste. It's a little bit like when people talk about Kleenex as a synonym for tissues, right? It's sort of like past the Kikoman. No one says that because it's a lot longer. <laughs> And saying past the soy sauce, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like we associate the taste of soy sauce with Kikoman. I think Bud Light to some extent was that. You could associate the taste of Bud Light with, with light beer. Uh, I mean, now when I look at the list of brands that are under the Anheuser-Busch 
um, portfolio. I mean, just to redo a few of these, because it's honestly just endlessly fascinating. So they have Budweiser, obviously Bud Light. Then they've got Michelob Ultra, Stella Artois, Bush Beer, Natural Light, Natty Light, Presidente, Landshark Lager, Hogarden, Shock Top. Then they've got their craft partners. There's a whole bunch of smaller brands here, including Four Peaks and Veras, Veza Sor and um, N- uh, Virtue Cider. Wow, interesting. I didn't even know that. Um, Goose Island, that's another one, right? Like, so they've got some creative ones under there. And then, of course, they've got their sort of like beyond beer category, which is meant to be their sort of more fun. And some of them are non alcoholic. Actually, I don't think I even knew that Highball Energy, one that you guys know, it's a classic favorite of mine. Highball Energy is under their portfolio. Who knew? I had no idea. But they've also got under the Beyond Beer category, Babe. So that's the Babe Rosé. It was originally a white girl rosé that was owned by the Fat Jewish. Um, I think it still in part is. And then they've got Cutwater Spirits, Rita's Neutral, which is vodka, seltzer, and real juice, and then Highball Energy. I think it's really interesting just to look at that right there because all of those have their own sort of unique portion of the market. What I think is amazing about Bud Light, and when I was thinking about this as a larger controversy in our current body politic, in the current national conversation about food and beverage, and what brands have permission to play in what spaces and where and when and why, what I think of the most and what I think is so shocking to me (laughs) is that I think what no one is also willing to say out loud is that if the taste was so spectacular of Bud Light and it was so unique and it was so different and it was so amazing and it was such a big game changer. And by game changer, I mean just something we rely on like soy sauce that we wouldn't really be having this conversation. Not in, not at the national kind of like fever pitch level that I'm seeing it on every news outlet covered in different ways, right? I think that there's something to the fact that if this was a, a new product under the Anheuser-Busch InBev portfolio, that this would have a little bit more permission to play when it comes to influencer marketing campaigns, period. Right. So like I think of something like a highball energy or like babe or like cutwater, any of those kind of newer brands that they've more recently acquired, those might have more permission to play because their taste is unique and it stands alone in the category. Whereas Bud Light is competing against not only brands outside of Anheuser-Busch, but they're competing inside the tent. They've got Stella and Natty Light and Bush and regular Budweiser and Michelob Ultra for crying out loud. I mean, honestly, when you think about that, like it's not that surprising that they were down 25% in sales, right? Since April 1st, since, since they launched their campaign um, that had their influencer marketing campaign that featured Dylan Mulvaney, right? I think it's just fascinating to think about because from a pure taste perspective, what would have happened if this were a an offshoot or a limited time offer of a Bud Light hard seltzer that had Bud Light branding, but was a hard seltzer, a different product, a different product formulation. I think sometimes what I see so often with a variety of different brands in the better for you category is that there is this push to drive sales through marketing only without thinking about the product innovation pipeline or what actually the capabilities of that pipeline really are. And what, where could we put a little pressure here? Like where might we think creatively about what type of new product or limited time offer we might want to launch just so that we can support a marketing initiative, right? Because I just think that what 
what the there's a square peg round hole phenomenon that's happened with Bud Light, and it's it's basically showing its true colors through this brand campaign. It's saying that they want the brand to evolve or, you know, quote unquote, evolve, depending on where you fall on this politically, right? They want the, they want the brand to, you know, take a stand or, or not. They just want to, you know, launch an influencer marketing campaign. And we'll get to all of that in our third point. But I think there's something really, really interesting happening there with the idea of doing something of letting the product kind of lead the way. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I've personally been disappointed by so many products on the market lately. And I think that what brands try to do when they know that their product isn't so great, or they know that their product is just as good as something else that's on the market right now, or subpar in a lot of ways <laughs> to a lot of other things, is really lean into the storytelling. And that's a big risk, as we've seen with Bud Light. It's also a big risk in general, because what you're doing is that you're relying on people buying into the idea of you rather than what you actually are. I, I think about this in the beauty space because um, there is a brand that I feel like this is going to be a polarizing statement I'm about to make <laughs> for my audience, but you guys will hopefully bear with me. I love some of the products from The Necessaire. There, It's a brand that was founded by someone in the the kind of the beauty editorial space a number of years ago. They're sold at Sephora and other places. Um, I love some of their products. Some of their products are just okay, right? Like I think their body wash is extremely overhyped, but their body moisturizer is amazing, right? So like, it's sort of like a product by product basis. I think we forget that brand loyalty works that way in 2023, right? Is that I'm not willing to say I'm universally dedicated to supporting this brand. I am willing to say, I like your body moisturizer. I think your body wash kind of sucks, right? And so I think like some radical honesty from brands to consumers about what their product actually is could really go a long way. And where do you see that the most? is by leaning into taste. Like who likes the taste of Bud Light? Who is that customer? And who is the customer that likes it enough to continue to buy the product? Once you have that clarified for yourself, the, the stronger your brand becomes because then you can speak directly to those people. Now, if you feel like you need to speak directly to a new audience or to take this in a different direction, then you need to come back to thinking about the taste because ultimately at the end of the day, you are a food and beverage product. You are an alcoholic beverage product, Bud Light. <laughs> you're, you're not a beauty brand. You're, you're not someone who can go out there and do a tart cosmetics trip with influencers and, you know, get tons of buzz around you because of that. Actually, I actually was listening to someone, um, a podcast that I really love, Molly McPherson, who does crisis communications. And I, if you're on TikTok, you've probably seen Molly McPherson. So I, um, I think I will have some kindred spirits listening to this right now, but we should have her on the podcast. I feel like I should reach out to her. Um, she would be really interesting to talk to, but she had a really interesting take on this is that she thinks that some of the aim of the Bud Light, um, the, this influencer marketing campaign was to generate buzz. And I actually don't think it was that. I think this was very straightforward and one of these like true corporate America conversations that I can just picture. I've been in the room. I have seen how this goes down. It was probably just like, who are the biggest influencers that we have relationships with and can we reach out? Right? I don't think it was any more complicated than that. I think that the thought, the thoughts about Dylan Mulvaney had nothing to do with being a trans woman. I think they had everything to do with 
her numbers, right? I mean, does she convert? What, how do we use this moment for brand awareness? We want to get the, the message out there. And how can we do that creatively and do things? And we have enough of a budget to spend where we can do things that are somewhat bespoke to individual in influencers. So I, I think we're forgetting that corporations are just behemoths and they're behemoths made up of people often at a, at a more junior level, younger people who are just thinking like, how do we get a bigger message out there? And what you do in doing that is you, you rightly, I mean, they did something that was the right thing here, which I think is that they let Dylan and every other influencer that was activated for any type of influencer strategy, influencer marketing strategy, they let them basically talk about the product however they want it, which is the way to do it. Honestly, when I see brands doing this or trying to do it differently, where they give the influencer the messaging, it never works. I mean, it sounds terrible. It sounds like totally canned and fake and like just completely pay for play. But what, what they didn't do was just say, Hey, you might want to mention the taste. <laughs> what does this taste like? Ultimately, we are a consumable product. And why are they not mentioning the taste? Because most people think it tastes a little bit like watered down pee. Right. Like that's just, that's just the thing of it. Right. Is that like, unless you have a standout product that tastes delicious, it, it is a hard one to tell the story about and to market about. But if you're going to take a sort of novel or new approach that is going to generate buzz, then you have to come up with something else new about your product to back it up. Maybe it would have even been a limited time offering that was packaging focused and that was something that you could, it's like, this stays colder longer because it's not in a can or I don't know. I just made that one up I'm trying to think about what else would fall into that category. But there's a lot of other ways that you could play off of tastes that don't have to do with reformulation or like the launch of a new product formulation in general. I think there's a lot of ways you could have done this and, and played into that. But remember that, you know, for better for you brands, taste rules above everything. If it doesn't taste good, then you're just not going to have loyal customers. You're not going to have repeat customers and it's going to be tough to get new customers on board. All right. Our last topic that I want to cover today and arguably our biggest topic, our most powerful topic is that I think that the biggest mistake that was made by Bud Light throughout this controversy. So today is May. God, what is today? Jeez. It's May 9th, even though this morning I missed a breakfast because I thought it was May 8th. So here we are. <laughs> so today's May 9th. This controversy became a controversy around April 1st when, um, when I believe that was when Dylan Mulvaney had posted on TikTok and perhaps Instagram, uh, using the hashtag, uh, Bud Light Partner, which by the way, just for anyone who is curious, this, it is absolutely true what the CEO of Bud Light has said, what the CEO of Anheuser-Busch InBev has said, which is that this is not an ad. It's not a, it's not a full scale brand campaign. It is an influencer marketing campaign, which when you see hashtag something partner, that is another way of saying hashtag sponsored. It's just a sponsored post. It does not mean that there is a full scale or long term commitment. The, the deal could be any variation of things. It could mean anything, but it could also just be a one off post. So it does not necessarily imply a brand marketing initiative or an advertising campaign, just to kind of get that one out of the way. Since that launch, um, the one thing that I have not seen from Bud Light is a stance, is taking a stand. Now, whether you fall on the side of 
absolutely Dylan Mulvaney and trans rights are the be all end all of things. And this is something we must stand for. Or you're on the polar opposite end of that, which is Dylan Mulvaney is um, not a person that we should be platforming, not a person that a, a corporation should be platforming and shame on you, Bud Light, regardless of where you stand on this. Bud Light's failure to say anything in the wake of this launch is a huge mistake. Now, I've seen a lot of publications at where, you know, different executives from the company, from Anheuser-Busch, from the parent company, or from Bud Light internally are making statements and coming out with different, you know, BS press release kind of garbage. Um, I've seen a lot of people saying, and particularly the CEO, and I believe it was the CEO of Bud Light who said everything about this campaign is misinformation and disinformation. Well, that's true and not true at the same time, right? I mean, they're right in saying that it's true that this was not a full-scale advertising campaign. This was not a limited time offer with Dylan's face on, on Bud Light cans that would be widely available to people. That's absolutely true. But the thing is that when the story first broke, and granted, it it was breaking by independent media sources, so it wasn't necessarily by mainstream media, what it really tapped into was a larger national conversation. Now, I bring up April 1st and the fact that today is May 9th to, to give you a larger sense of the picture of things. The current political climate is not one that has reckoned with the idea of the trans community activating in corporations, in school systems, and and essentially, you know, there has been a lot of conversation around the trans issue, the trans community, the the place for the trans community and the conversation around it. I would personally argue that it's less about people who are actually identifying as trans and more about the politics around identifying as trans and people falling on different sides of that issue. So less about the actual thing, the actual nature of things and how people personally feel or choose to identify and more about pushing from either side of the political aisle. So if we remember that for a second, you know, I think that basically Bud Light comes off as we're hesitant to comment on this, not only because we don't know where we stand and we might stand somewhere individually that is different from where the company stands and all of that. But I think it's also because (laughs) there's a little bit of like a reluctance to say we're involved in this, right? It's a little bit like, that's not our mistake. We didn't make that mistake. We just got an influencer to do a sponsored post, right? Like that's the vibe that you're getting. And it actually really doesn't play well or look good for them right now at all. Because the thing is that sometimes, and I think this is probably the biggest takeaway of all, right? Is that sometimes the mistakes or the problems that you have to deal with in your life aren't ones that you start. And I think that they're like, that is so true on a personal level, but it's so true on a professional level too, which is, yeah, it sucks, Bud Light, that this is not the problem that you made. You didn't make this problem because it is untrue that you like launched some full-scale advertising campaign. That is untrue. But when you run around calling it misinformation and disinformation and you're really late in doing that, you've got a million other problems at this point, right? Like you just look weak. You look like you didn't know what was happening under your own, you know, corporate umbrella. And you also look like you're denying facts, right? Because to the average consumer, 
they don't care that you didn't see this as an advertising campaign. They see this as you activated someone who right now is a controversial figure in American life. So it doesn't really matter to them whether it's fucking misinformation or disinformation that it wasn't a full-scale advertising campaign that was has a spot in the 8 o'clock hour in primetime. They care that this happened whatsoever. So it sucks. It totally sucks. You didn't get to drive this narrative. It's not actually what your brand did or what the company did. You didn't do what, what you're essentially being accused of doing, which is doing a launching a full scale campaign with a, um, a trans influencer, right? But it doesn't matter anymore. You just have to own it. So what happens when you own it? Well, you know, in my opinion, you really had kind of two options. I think there were really two very, and I hate to use this term right now, but just for the sake of keeping things relatively light, two binary <laughs> options in, in this situation. The first one would be to say, we it would be to come out immediately and say, we stand with Dylan and we stand with the trans community. Now, whether or not you agree with that politically, I don't care. Honestly, I mean, I don't, I, I, there are people that, that may agree and disagree with me on a variety of different political issues. You yourself, as someone who works at the company, may feel mixed about that. But I think you have an opportunity here to say, we stand by it. We stand by our vice president of marketing, Alyssa Heinerschneid. We stand by our influencer marketing team and we stand by the influencer herself, right? You could have said that. The earlier, the better for something like that. If you're going to stand behind what you did, it honestly takes the national tone down when you let other people, when you basically shut up everyone else. You're, you're sort of shutting down the haters, right? You're saying, yeah, we stand by this. So what? This was our choice. And we chose to celebrate Dylan for it being one year since Dylan transitioned and whatever else you want to say. But Bud Light, you know, the future of Bud Light is with the trans community. I don't know. Whatever you want to say to that. The point being that they didn't do that. <laughs> now, the other option here would be to say, wow, we really fucked up. Now, I know that Bud Light doesn't see it as they fucked up, right? Because they're so busy in the weeds telling you that it's misinformation that they fucked up and they didn't really do the thing that they did, right? And I think they're, they've totally lost sight of the fact that as a consumer, it just doesn't fucking matter. It does not matter. People just want to hear that you're either standing with them or not. Now, what's fascinating to me is that by doing neither of those things, by waiting a whole week or two, I think, I think it was almost two weeks before Bud Light even issued a statement where they took the middle position, which is like, we stand with everyone. <laughs> we support everyone. And we support our customers, which is basically like saying, I'm sorry, but without the words, I'm sorry, which is honestly just not acceptable anymore. When you do something that if you perceive, if you internally had, you know, your all of a sudden your war room meeting with your executive leadership team and your board of directors and said, did we fuck this up? What did we do wrong? Let's have a little, you know, kind of come to Jesus about what just happened here. Did we do the right, the right or wrong thing, right? When you're in that moment, you don't do the both sides thing. You gotta, you gotta kind of decide what you stand for and go with it because the thing is, and the biggest issue for Bud Light right now is their distribution, right? So a lot of their distributors have basically read them the riot act saying, we can't sell this beer anymore. We're struggling. Like we don't want it. And so what have they done as a response to that? They, they're giving away free cases to their distributors. 
I mean, there was an announcement just, I think, yesterday even that was like Bud Light giving away a free case and a bunch of money, a bunch of cash to all of their national distributors. And back to my point about Bud Light being as American as apple pie. I mean, American business owners, distrib- distributors, they see right through this, right? I mean, you can't be so crazy and so desperate as to think that your distributors who are charged with selling your products to effectively part of this alcohol distribution pipeline, right? They're, they're charged with selling that product to consumers. So they have to go out there and sell. If you're so desperate to get product off your hands because it's not selling, that you're willing to give it away to the distributors for free, you look like you're untouchable. You're basically continuing to feed into your own bad publicity of saying, yeah, we really stink. I mean, no one's buying this. So here, take a case for free. <laughs> it is so embarrassing. I mean, I'm cringing just talking about it and I'm alone in a room with my miniature dachshund speaking into a microphone saying this to you. I'm cringing for them. It's just such a bad look. You can't say we're giving it away for free. If it's still a hot commodity that is worth selling, then it's not free. It comes at a cost, right? There's a price tag attached to that thing. Now, I think someone was owed an apology in all of this. And if Bud Light had merely made the decision about who that person was, that could clarify a lot of what the brand objectives are moving forward. But I think right now, based on what they've done to date at the time of this recording, is just make more of a mess of things. And I don't think, and I've got to disagree with hopefully our future podcast guest, Molly McPherson, <laughs> that, that this was, you know, an attempt to create buzz because I think they'd like nothing more than to just sell beer and to just sell beer in a way that is back up and that recovers the 25% that they lost in sales over the last month or so. Now, I also think that another big mistake or a big, you know, attention grabber for me was not standing by their vice president of marketing. Now, of course, being the person that I am who just cannot get enough and has to deep dive on a story when there is a story there. Um, I listened to the full episode of Alyssa Heinerstein. I'm going to link it here in the episode notes because I think a lot of my listeners will be curious just to hear a little bit more from her. I've heard a lot of the clips and this one clip that get that is continuously repeated of Alyssa Heinerschneid, their VP of marketing, on a podcast where she's talking about what the, you know, the history of the Bud Light brand is. And she refers to it as fratty and having a fratty sense of humor that's outdated. And I think that is just a classic misread of who your customer is and what they would want to hear. I mean, I also think that it's really just ignorant of the times in which we live and it reeks of a New York City, and I say this as I am sitting here in a New York City apartment, it reeks of a New York City and Boston and Los Angeles and Chicago and like these big city, like privileged consumer, you know, privileged, holier than thou tone that people are getting a little tired of. 
Now, I say that with a tremendous amount of caution and trepidation because in some ways I am this person. Like, <laughs> I am not saying that from a judgmental place. I am saying that from a realistic place and a self-aware place because I'm sure that there's plenty of things that I say that are out of touch or make me sound as privileged as I, as I genuinely am. But I, but I also think that it's tone deaf to be at a brand like Bud Light and say that about your customers. When you insult your current customer as a means to, to reach a new customer, it just never works. It never works unless you're really willing to put a stake in the ground about for, for and about and around your new customer. But that really requires you to be committed to that new customer, which there's no sign that Bud Light actually is. Right. And why would they have to be? I mean, up until now, they've had market share. They've had people who just like are, you know, we're buying Bud Light because we see it at the store and they've had the distributors on board in order to get them into the stores so that they can be stacked on, on supermarket shelves and alcohol on liquor store shelves. Right. So like you haven't really had to do that much work until now. But the question is, who is your new consumer? Your new consumer, you have lost market share to the sparkling, you know, non-alcoholic or lower ABV or different type of lighter, lower calorie alternative beverages, these quote unquote better for you alcohol brands, you're losing market share to them. And that brings me back to the first two points that we kind of spoke to, which is that if you're not going to evolve the product, if you're not going to think about taste, if you're not going to think about your unique value proposition as a lower calorie beer, and you're just going to say, we want to speak to young people, you're forgetting what made you who you are. And ultimately, in addition to what made you who you are from a product and ingredient standpoint, it is the customers that got you there. So if you're going to leave them behind and you're going to make that choice to say, we're not just talking to them anymore, which by the way, let's be honest, no executive team would go for that. No board of directors would ever go for that. But just pretend for a second. <laughs> if you're going to make that decision, then you have to stand by it and you have to have a very clear definition of who that person is. Now, all of that being said, I don't care if you agree with Bud Light or you disagree with Bud Light or where you fall on the issue of um, of Dylan Mulvaney as being a an influencer who was activated in this campaign. I don't care where you stand on that. I think Bud Light made a huge mistake by not standing by their VP of marketing. Now, she is, it, when you listen to this episode, if you choose to, I, I will kind of summarize what I learned from it here. The first thing that I learned that really ticked me off by the end was her use of the phrase, <laughs> this is going to make you guys laugh, finding your joy. It's just about finding your joy. Just find your joy, guys. During the pandemic, I really had to find my joy. Now, if, if you're a little tired of that, as I am, I'm tired of that just saying it three times out loud to you in this microphone right now. I mean, everything about that reeks of privilege, right? But it, everything about that also reeks of this kind of tone-deaf marketing person archetype. <laughs> and I, I feel so bizarre saying that to you right now because I also left that interview, left the experience of listening to this interview thinking, what an amazing fucking person. Alyssa Heinerschein beat stage three melanoma at the age of 25. It is. That is some serious shit, you guys. I mean, I, I can only imagine how terrifying that is and how much she's been through. And, you know, we shouldn't necessarily know that, but because it was the premise of the podcast episode itself, it's really hard to ignore how much of a real life hurdle that is and that she's here today and cancer free and 
working and very successful and lives in New York and has three kids that she had by surrogacy, which she also talks about in the podcast episode. Very fascinating, really moving and very interesting, right? But, but the other side of that is that it's filled with marketing platitudes. It's filled with this kind of like big corporation, big media narrative that we're just seeing and hearing everywhere. That that big corporate push for driving the narrative the way that you see it and progress and inclusivity, which is a highly subjective term, as I think many of us are now learning. I think that there is something that's a little bit confused in all of that, which is, you know, there are still real everyday people that perhaps you're not noticing are the people that you rely on to, to buy the product, the people that are your everyday Bud Light drinkers. So whether or not this was, you know, to use a hackneyed phrase, product market fit for Alyssa Heinerschneid, I don't know. But I think that Bud Light would have a lot more of a leg to stand on if they just simply stood behind their talent. Now, I think it was her and someone else that was put on leave from Bud Light, basically, I think because they felt like they had to have some head, heads roll without having real heads roll, right? Because they didn't lose their jobs. They're just sort of put on pause. But how shitty must you feel if you're the person that was, you know, technically in charge of this, even though we can only imagine this was someone on her team that was in charge of influencer marketing. And even then it was probably an agency that was hired to do this campaign, right? But it's really quite something to, to think about how brands try to do this pandering to Gen Z. We're so authentic and we really are here for progress and inclusivity, all these buzzwords, right? And then when when something gets lit on fire like this or like something blows up in their face like this did, they say, okay, okay, we're firing her. It looks like you stand for nothing. It looks like you stand for nothing. And this happens all the time with big businesses. It's this attempt to stand for everything and therefore you stand for nothing. Now, you know, I know that that was a roundabout way of getting there, but I think it just speaks volumes about the brand that they couldn't just simply stand behind their talent and say, these are best in class marketers. And they, and then that's where they have the opportunity to say the line that they came up with together in the boardroom. We stand behind them and we stand behind the marketing strategy, or we stand behind them and we don't stand behind the marketing strategy. We made a mistake, but we stand behind them. Either way, stand behind your talent. Otherwise, you guys just look like assholes. So just to recap those three big ways, you've got to have your unique value proposition down. You've got to know what it is you're in the marketplace to do and to be for consumers in 2023. If you're a food and beverage product, you've also got to have your taste on lock. You can come up with new and creative LTOs. You can come up with new and creative products that are offshoots of your current product. but if you're a brand marketer, you need to do some a real deep dive. Do your homework on the product pipeline of your organization. Look into how the product is actually made, what goes into it, who the people are that are behind it. What's the R&D process like? You have to actually know these things to, to really have a, a clear brand message and to ultimately deliver a product that tastes good. And then third is you really need to be clear about your brand values, even if they're not your personal values, even if they are something that you don't stand for, but you can, you, you're a human being. We all contain multitudes, right? You can stand for one thing as part of an organization and maybe your own personal views are something different and that's okay. But if you work for a brand, then you need to know what that brand stands for and you need to stand by it when the going gets tough. 
ultimately, every brand is going to make mistakes. Everyone is going to have hurdles. We all are personally, professionally, big corporations are no exception to that. But the ones that really stand the test of time are the ones that choose to stand for something clearly and without apology. So Bud Light, they, they should not have come out with their weak milk toast apology. You just have to make a decision, though. You can't have it both ways. Not now, not arguably ever, but certainly not in 2023 and beyond. Questions, comments, thoughts. What do you guys think? I would love to hear your feedback on this episode. I'd love to know where you stand on this issue. I honestly have gone so many different ways. And as with so many other things in the world, the more you learn, the more you realize just how very nuanced and complicated any of these issues actually are (laughs) and how the narrative that any media outlet has painted for us on this is it's actually only just surface level. There's just so much more there there. And I would love to hear what you guys think. That's it for today. I will be back next week with an amazing guest and I can't wait to see you guys then. Thanks so much for listening to The Business of Wellness. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Remember that advice provided on this podcast is based on my application of research and practice as a registered dietitian and should not replace medical advice provided by your physician. If you like what you're listening to, please follow the show, leave a five-star rating, and share something you love from today's episode by leaving a review. This podcast only grows with your support. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it far and wide. It may be the one thing someone needs to hear to start building that roadmap today to secure a healthier, happier future. That's it for now. So until next time, cheers.